Hi, my name is Mike Jordan-Lasky, and I work with the Jesuits in Washington, D.C. Six years ago this week, an Argentinian Jesuit named Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio was elected Pope. A couple of months into Francis's papacy, which was only happening, remember, because Benedict XVI had shocked the world with his resignation, I did an email interview with the longtime Vatican reporter John Allen. I asked him to describe what that time period had been like, but he could only use six words or fewer. He wrote back to me, first an earthquake, then a hurricane. Pope Francis really did take the world by storm right from the beginning. Even his name was groundbreaking. No pope had ever taken the name of St. Francis of Assisi before, maybe because he was too intimidating in his model of faith and holiness. Whatever reason, this cardinal from the developing world chose Francis and clearly had big plans. Then there were the first words out of his mouth when he stepped onto the balcony that night to greet the crowds jammed into St. Peter's Square. Buonasera, or good evening in Italian, he said. He was so informal and conversational and, and humble. There weren't any grand papal pronouncements. Those first two words, buonasera, set a tone for so much that was to follow. So to mark this sixth anniversary of Pope Francis's election, I sat down for a conversation with Father Tim Kosicki, who's a Jesuit priest and the president of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. He's also my boss. So it's time for me to wrap up this intro and let him get a word in edgewise. Only one of us has met Pope Francis after all, and you definitely don't want to miss that story. Hi, Father Tim. Thank you for coming downstairs for a chat with us today. Uh, so this is uh, a big week for Pope Francis. Uh, tomorrow, we're recording on Tuesday, so Wednesday, March the 13th, is his six-year anniversary of his election to be Pope. And six years is a good chunk of time, right? You get to kind of put some of your priorities in, in motion. So I'm just I'm interested for you as a fellow Jesuit, uh, what have been your impressions of Pope Francis these six years? What has impressed you about him, surprised you about him? Just go back to that time six years ago and, and tell us about what this, this time has been like. Yeah, one of the great ironies is uh, on March 12th of 2013, there were tons of Jesuits who were telling why there would never be a Jesuit Pope. And then all that was undone a day later. And it's historic because it's really been since the mid-19th century that a member of a religious order had been elected pope. So there was, first of all, the fact that it was the first Jesuit pope, but I think as significantly the fact that there was a religious as, as pope. And so if you look at over six years, we know that uh, then Father Bergoglio had been provincial in, in Argentina, and provincial terms are almost always six years, so that's a really good, uh, a good benchmark and a good measure. Uh, and I'd say the first thing is you can tell he served as a religious uh, member of the Society of Jesus, but as a religious. Uh, his, his very first call to go to the periphery, to go out. He didn't really want people focused inward. He wanted everyone to go out. Shows that, that, that classic missionary approach to the faith, that the, the, the faith grows. Um, it, it grows by going out and, and, and bringing the good news, bringing, bringing the message, particularly to the places uh, that people might not immediately recognize. So I think that's been clearly in the first six years uh, something that has been him. Uh, what, what's so unique is often people think of the Jesuits as the intellectuals of the church, and there are a lot of intellectual heavyweights. But by comparison, uh, Bergoglio did not 
have much of an academic career. He was, he was in governance in the society at a very young age. My God, he was in his 30s when he became novice director and then provincial and was involved in Jesuit formation. But he wasn't a noted scholar. I mean, people weren't, his, his books weren't leaping off the shelves uh, because his approach to the papacy is more pastoral. I mean, I think he, he loved being a pastor. He wanted to form priests, whether it was in Buenos Aires or as Jesuits, to have a pastoral and compassionate heart. And so I, I think uh, in, in these six years, if I could say two things, one is this going out to the periphery, to the margins, and to go with the heart uh, of a pastor. I think we see that in so many different examples and stories. And, and one, I think, right from the beginning, we saw his first trip outside of uh, Rome was to go to Lampedusa, right? This place where migrants are arriving, where migrants who are from you know, North Africa trying to get, to get to, to Europe often die in transport. And he said, that's where I want to go to kind of to show my solidarity with, with those people. And, and that, especially the closeness with migrants and that special care has definitely been a big kind of specific piece within his care for, for the peripheries. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, he has a, a strong devotion to Pope Paul VI. As a matter of fact, he was the Pope who canonized Pope Paul VI. And Paul VI spoke to the Jesuits at our 32nd General Congregation. And it's a very, very famous quote. I'm, I don't have it in front of me. But, but basically, in talking about the Jesuits, Paul VI said, uh, wherever times in the world when the church have been the hard, harshest at the crossroads of ideologies. He says we're sort of at the intersection where the burning needs of the people met the perennial needs of the gospel. There the Jesuits have been. So this whole notion of the crossroads of ideologies. So, so um, one has to believe uh, then Father Bergoglio really heard that message of Paul VI and, and, and just has a passion for being at the intersection of where the gospel needs to be heard and where people are in the greatest pain. So Lampedusa would be a classic example. The, 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 the prisons in Rome on, on Holy Thursday, some of these, these clear steps, these directions, which people didn't associate with the first steps of uh, uh, the, the Bishop of Rome, uh, the Supreme Pontiff. So um, I think that's, that's very clear. That's, a, that's, that's his passion, that's his heart, that's what drives him. Sure. So, so you see in, in him then this, this pastoral heart, this closeness on the margins, calling uh, all people of faith to build what he calls a, the culture of encounter. How do you see those clear personal priorities for him making their way down to the rest of us in the church? Well, I, he obviously leads by example. So he inspires people to follow his witness. And I can't tell you how many people um, encounter, for example, the homeless on the street differently uh, post Pope Francis, they they feel from him uh, almost an obligation that that my faith requires that I see the face of Christ in in everyone. Again, it's not anything new, uh, anything fundamentally different, but it is a reorientation, a refocus of how I how I live my faith. Um, he he believes in synodality. He really believes that what can best be done in the diocesan or the national or regional levels should be done that way. And so he's going to give the example, he's going to give the witness, and then he's going to hope that others follow in that regard. So um, I think he's, he's big into delegation. And uh, I think he, is, he lives in the daily hope and faith that all, all leaders in the church will take up his call to care and love the poor. Sure. And you're one of those leaders in the church. You, like Pope Francis, had been a service of provincial. You now, as president of the Jesuit Conference of Canada United States, 
you've done that entire part of your ministry during his Pope Francis pontificate. So how has he inspired you specifically in your, your role here at the Jesuit conference? Well, there's no, no question that he's a very humble man, and there's a, there's a certain level of humility that he's brought to, to the papacy, and some of those are external examples where he lives, uh, the simplicity of, uh, of his own life, but also um, his, his, I think, clear and consistent um, message that we, we need to take on the smell of the sheep. And I remember, he, I remember when he said it, it was at the Chrism Mass, his very first Chrism Mass, which is uh, often in Holy Week. So, I mean, some of his, his great first stuff happened in Holy Week in 2013. And he said, if you are ministering to the people, you have to take on the smell of the sheep. And that goes more to the leaders, people like me. So, so because I, I sit in an office in Washington, and because I, I travel globally and go to a lot of important meetings, doesn't mean that I am in any way exempt <laughs> from interacting with with the people of God, understanding the needs of the people of God, uh, and, and having those those personal relationships. So so my own pastoral engagement, my own taking public transportation and, and, and being one of the people on the street are as informative to my leadership as some of the higher level meetings or decisions that the Jesuits globally may make. Sure. So have you have you met Pope Francis? Have you personally spent time with him? Um, I, I've had two occasions to meet him. Uh, one, um, the most recent was a larger group, and that was in 2016. He came to our Jesuit General Congregation in Rome. Uh, he gave an address. There were about 220 of us in the room. Uh, there was a Q&A, uh, and we all got a chance to shake his hand. It was, that was more pro forma, although it was a, it was a wonderful engagement. Uh, I had the good fortune of attending one of his morning masses in April of 14. I was living in Rome, and... Um, and so you, you basically go to mass. Uh, it's about fifty people, and then afterwards you get to, you get to greet them. And <laughs> it was kind of funny at the time. My my dad was going in the hospital to have a kidney removed. For, it was a, a cancer surgery, and um, my family said, "No, stay in Rome. We'll, we'll take care of dad. Just pray for him in Rome." And so when I when I met the Pope, and it's it's not much time, but I, I said what I did, and you know he looks at you like, "Yeah, okay." But the minute I said to him. You know, I'm speaking in Italian, but Holy Father, you pray for my father. Father, he's going into surgery this week. You know, immediately, that's when he comes to life. You know, pulls me in. What's his name? When is it? Uh, and the, the the surgery was oddly enough on Good Friday, and I think he said, "Well, the gates to heaven are open on Good Friday." But your mother probably doesn't want that. He doesn't have that playfulness to him. Um, and it was a great thing when I called my dad. So, yes, was praying for you. You know, this is uh, this is wonderful. But that 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 was uh, that was the only one-on-one -on -one encounter, but, but clearly he didn't have any questions about what I did. Uh, but to be a pastor to my family at that moment, that's who he is. Sure. That reminds me of another word he, he uses a lot, which is accompaniment, which uh, just, again, to be present and walking with people, especially in moments of need, really just greeting you that, that way, um, which really, I think, seemed to be, to me, reflected that, that theme of accompaniment in the Jesuits' new uh, universal apostolic preferences, these four kind of guideposts or you know, these preferences in ministry uh, that the whole global society of Jesus will be kind of using to guide their ministry for the next 10 years, uh, which include a journeying, that accompaniment with youth, accompanying those who are on the margins, as we talked about, um, protecting our common home here uh, you know, on earth, as Francis talked about in his encyclical letter, Laudato Si', 
and uh, the spiritual exercises, of course, grounding all of these, the Ignatian spiritual exercises and the, the principle of discernment. So we have these four new pre preferences hot off the press, seem to really be inspired by Francis's ministry. You were involved in some of the, the dialogues that went up to leading and to planning of these, these preferences. What was that experience like? What, what do you draw from uh, those, those, these universal apostolic preferences uh, as we begin to kind of roll them out and put them into practice? Well, you know, some people always ask, what is the mission of the Society of Jesus? And, you know, so many, all these organizations have mission statements. And, and, well, our mission comes back to the founding from St. Ignatius Loyola. I mean, and, and if you want to boil it down to, to a few words, it's to save souls, you know, the progress of souls uh, in, in, in the spiritual life and through preaching, through ministrations of the Word, through teaching. So, I mean, and that, that, that fundamental mission never changes. But, you know, this this era is different than the time of Ignatius, and you know every decade or two decades we have to ask ourselves what, what as we make apostolic choices, ministry choices, we decide Jesuits are going to go here or not there. What guides those preferences? And so that was the whole the whole uh, worldwide society. Every community prayed about this, jotted down what they thought these preferences should be, uh, and it kind of filtered up. You know, it was a, it was a grassroots discernment at all levels of the Jesuit uh, order. Uh, that made its way to provincials, to, to conferences. So all of our provincials here in the Conference of Canada of the U.S. did a discernment, and then we all went to Rome. And so there we are with, with all of this information. And the, the beauty of Jesuit governance is you have all this information, and someone says, well, do you just find the algorithm? You know, get the number cruncher. Okay, here they are. It's not a metric exercise, because you take that information, but then you pray about it. And so we were together in Rome, there about 25 of us in the general, and it's his council, and those of us who are the conference presidents, so we're uh, all, all together. And you say, here's what we heard from around the world, and now here's how the Spirit is moving in us. And uh, it, it, all I can say is it works, because um, I think every part of the world felt their, their preferences were reflected in the four universal apostolic preferences, and we, who were there to discern them, felt you know, the Spirit of God is calling us to, to make all things being equal. These are the choices we will make in the next 10 to 15 years. One thing I really loved hearing about some of that process was that, so after all of this discernment and the kind of the four, these four central preferences had been decided on, they were presented to Pope Francis for his review, and then, at least the way the story was reported, he then essentially hands them back to the Jesuits, uh, to Father General, to Father Sosa, not necessarily just as a document he's signing off on, but really as a mission from the Holy Father to the society. Uh, what a pretty powerful, um, almost ratification or missioning, really, from the Holy Father. Historians will say when, when Ignatius wanted to get the Jesuit order founded, I mean, the, the, these companions of Jesus, there was a time when the church wanted, uh, <laughs> sort of didn't want to start any more new religious institutes, new religious orders. There were already a number of them. There were some crises that some of them were facing. And so Ignatius positioned it to Pope Paul III as, we will go anywhere in the world that you send us. So this, we, we will be your special apostles wherever you want to go in the world. So uh, obedience to the Supreme Pontiff, the Holy Father, and, and accepting missions from him is, is part of our, it's our charism, it's part of our foundation. And so that was the, the wisdom to say, Pope Francis, here's the fruit of our discernment. Now, you pray over it and, 
and missing us, which is which is uh, what happened. Uh, and I think there's, there's a good relationship between the Superior General and and uh, Pope Francis. And, and, but it's it, it's a continuation. I mean, every general congregation, uh, whether it's Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, Pope Saint John Paul II, uh, Pope Paul the Sixth, there have been exhortations to the Jesuits before those congregations. So always turning to the Holy Father to say, "Give us wisdom, leadership, guidance, and inspiration." Sure. And again, what might be unique this time is that <laughs> the Pope being a Jesuit for the first time, that relationship uh, is interesting, right? And is different because the Pope, again, is part of this society for whom the preferences are, are there and will be, will be lived out. Uh, and, and so Pope Francis, we know, does keep his, you know, he is, uh, he is still a Jesuit, his identity as, as a Jesuit. And one of the, the ways that that is lived out is through annual retreat. Of course, retreats are not restricted only to Jesuits, but Francis as, right now, actually, he is on uh, on a retreat with staff members, uh, people he works with uh, in Rome, in the Curia in Rome, and asked on Twitter for prayers as he was beginning the spiritual exercises this year. Uh, so he has, he has kept that up, obviously, as a part of his, you know, Jesuit identity, his Catholic identity. Uh, so I'm just curious, because the, the, the retreat within the Jesuit world, the Jesuit context, is an important thing. It's something that, again, Jesuits are called to do every year. So, and I, again, often the phrase that I hear associated with Jesuit retreats in particular is silent retreat. So I've never been on a silent retreat. Um, does that literally mean that you're walking into a, a retreat place for like a whole week and not saying a word? Like, how, how does that work? Let's start with silence and then we'll get into the, the meat. So, so um, a, a silent retreat, I'm afraid I, I saw this movie, A Quiet Place. You know, you make one sound and the demons come and the beasts come and devour you. Right. Uh, that, that's not, I, I wouldn't think of that when you think of a silent retreat. So it's quite appropriate on a silent retreat to say pass the salt or what time is breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> that, 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 so efficient communication can be spoken. Um, the, the purpose of a, a silent retreat is to make space to, to be with God and, and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the autobiography, St. Ignatius's autobiography, there are multiple times where he refers to himself in the third person. He says, the pilgrim, he calls himself, the pilgrim was taught by God. Now, that seems like, well, okay, but, but at that time, I mean, almost every teaching came from the church. I mean, magisterial. And so, so to be taught by God, actually, he was dragged before the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, he writes in his autobiography of actually being <laughs> chained, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, he addressed their questions and, and the spiritual exercises and his autobiography and things were, were later embraced by the church. But, but ultimately, retreat is, and it is an encounter with God. That's why you need the silence. Uh, that God can speak to me. Now, how does that happen? I mean, is it a voice coming out? Well, maybe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to determine what anyone's spiritual experience is, but this is a preached retreat, and generally a retreat is either there's a director, somebody you talk with daily so that you're sensing spiritual movements, or it's preached where someone comes in and gives one or two, three reflections a day, and there's the opportunity for you to speak to that director, always the opportunity for, for the sacrament of reconciliation, for confession. And so often as you're listening, he's on a preach retreat, and it's a Benedictine abbot who's from the north of Italy who's preaching this retreat. As you're listening and as you're praying, you say, well, what moved me? Like, boy, that passage really stayed with me, versus, well, I don't remember that. And often that's how we believe God speaks, by, by the movements inside of us. So silence and that time away, you, you cut off email, you, you put down your personal devices, you, you just suspend your day-in, day-out work so that you can be attentive to those movements and how the Spirit of God is, is calling something forth in you. 
So you do you make one of these retreats each year for a full week usually? How, yes, it's there? only about eight days. I mean, okay. we, we, we try to do eight days, yeah. And during that time, you're saying, even though you get a lot of emails, I'm sure, uh, you're, you're checked, you, your cell phone's off, like, you're not... Yeah, you're I not mean, it, it is a real disconnect. It is real, especially email. I mean, e- email work has to be, so there's always a message on retreat for, for these days. Um, uh, yeah, I keep a mobile device just because if somebody has, like... There's a major event that they somebody thinks that I should know, but frankly, I love putting the the device away. I don't know. You can go on a walk without carrying anything, um, and uh, most of us have a, a hard time the first couple days getting into it, mm. and then once we're into it, we don't want to leave it. Sure. So it's a it's a tremendous opportunity. We have the luxury of uh, these eight days, but I would also say we work weekends, <laughs> so um, we probably structure our time differently. That's why th- there are opportunities for people to do retreats who, who can't take eight days to do it over the course of, I don't know, Lent, like one day a week. You set a few hours aside, you meet with the director. So there are, there are varieties of ways of making retreats. And Ignatius, in his spiritual exercises, makes those accommodations. Sure. So the thing I love about, as I learn more about Ignatius, is always those some of those practical applications. Well, this is the best way to do it, you know, to take this amount of time. But if you can't do that, we'll, we can make some arrangements for you. That feels almost very modern, but it's something he was thinking of, you know, even then that everyone's life is different. And you, you mentioned kind of going into that, that na- it takes a little while to kind of get into that kind of place of, of silence, that place of quiet, to allow yourself to hear uh, God communicating with you in whatever way that, you know, would be. Uh, I wonder if that, have you noticed that to be true more in the past, say, 10 years when we've had this kind of mobile technology all the time? Is it harder to kind of tune that out than it would have been when you were like a, a younger Jesuit? Well, I think it, I think it has to be. I mean, uh, my, my God, I had over a decade of retreats before, even more so before there was even email. Uh, the notion of a personal device was, uh, so, so I think it has become harder. I think it has become harder. Having said that, there are two, there are two distractions. One is clearly technology and all that it brings us, but the, but the other is what what's churning inside of me, and so that that's the other thing. If you go into a retreat, you're upset about something at home or upset about something at work, and, and you say, "I'm going to fix this problem on this retreat. I'm going to fix my family, or I'm going to fix my job, or I'm going to fix this person I'm worried about." Then that's not a retreat. <laughs> that's not a retreat. So so that can be. That's always been the case, and and that can be even more distracting. And that's why a, a director or someone to check in with to say, "Okay." That can wait. That can wait. Maybe there's something else God wants to do in you during this time. So um, it's 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 a disconnect from distractions. It's a silence, but it's also uh, a letting go of the baggage we bring into retreat. That yeah, that letting go. I can even as you're saying that, I'm thinking about all the things that are weighing on me right now. What do you have even some for yourself? What are your modes of letting go when you enter either whether on a retreat experience or just in your your prayer life? What are some of the ways that you can find you find it helpful to let to let yourself like know stuff. You know the great the the, the greatest line Pope John the twenty third in the middle of the Second Vatican Council when everything was just so much was changing and he he, he just went to bed and said it's your church Lord I'm going to bed. <laughs> I think that's right. There's not much you can do in a day. I, and, and so so for me letting go is first of all what what is God asking me to deal with. 
and what am I obsessing about that's bigger than me and is in God's hands or is in a larger group's hands? So, so, and that's where the daily prayer is important because by praying every day, and Jesuits use this thing in examination of conscience, uh, when you, a good opportunity to review a day it, it is to say, what should I hang on to and what should I let go of? And I think we have to do that on a daily basis. Sometimes we undertake things that are bigger than us, uh, things that might not even be resolved in our lifetime. And but but what I do during the five, ten, fifteen years I'm involved in it can help it in the next fifty to hundred years. So to to be discerning, to say what is God asking me to do? What what have I been missioned to do by by Jesuits and others? Uh, and what do I have to turn over to God and say I'm going to bed? Sure. So in those in those prayer moments or re- retreat again, taking that that time in quiet and reflection, letting go to kind of hopefully again opening yourself to to God speaking. I imagine there are times when you feel like oh, there's a message from God that's coming in loud and clear in the midst of my prayer. But I'm sure there are times too, even on a retreat, you set everything aside, you get ready, and you're you're waiting for that big something to, to break through to something like a voice from the heavens, uh, and you're just not hearing anything. Have you had that experience on a retreat? I think that happens to everyone where you scream, God, answer. Um, especially if it's something that's just too complex to be solved in the moment. God, give me give me the answer. And, and that, that's where patience and perseverance are, are hallmarks of spirituality. If we, if we really want to see how God's moving in us, sometimes you have to try on feelings for a few days, a few weeks, even a few months. Uh, anyone who's ever discerned a vocational choice, a career choice, and they ask, how do I know? You say, well, you know, Ignatius had this great thing, well, try on, like, for three or four days, staying where you are. Try on for three or four days in this, in this, new, this new mission, this new job, and say, now, where do you feel the energy? Where do you, where do you feel moved? So, so, so a, a, a big thing is, is seeing how God is moving inside of ourselves rather than looking for external signs, you know. I mean, if, if we think a bolt of lightning is God speaking, maybe, but maybe it's just a bolt of lightning. Sure. And that, I think, uh, it seems to be a highlight of Ignatian spirituality is to kind of trust those, those feelings that we have to pay attention to, at least to pay attention to them, uh, to seek God in all things. Um, what, what does that, that mean to you, that sense of trying to, again, to, to communicate with God, to listen to God without hearing a voice that's like calling you on the telephone? Yeah, and you, 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 you know, use that expression, finding God in all things. And I, I, again, another hallmark of St. Ignatius Loyola was whereas many religious orders, for good reason, went away from society, away from civilization, the monastic, uh, cloistered. And it's beautiful. I mean, I love going to a monastery uh, to pray, to, to be with men or women who, who spend the time. Ignatius didn't want that. Ignatius said, you know, our... our uh, our monastery is the, the city. Um, our our pre-Jew, the place where you kneel down to pray, maybe the classroom where I teach or the pulpit where I preach. So he wanted us to be in the city and allow what we're experiencing on the day-in, day-out life of the city to inform our prayer, to affect our own spiritual growth and formation, and to believe that God could be speaking to us through the very people we encounter every day. Okay, well, Father Tim, before I let you go, since we're in the middle of Lent here, or toward the beginning of Lent, I have to ask, what are you doing for Lent? Are you giving up something? Or what, what I always try to, I always make a point of doing both what I give up and what I do. And um, in terms of uh, giving up, well, 
My my dad uh, lo- and I love sweets, so we give up chocolate desserts for Lent. And why do I like it? Because every time I go, because we have big chocolate bowls or baskets in our office, every time I go for one, it reminds me. It, for me, it's more the the five, six, eight time a day reminder. Oh, it's Lent. It's Lent. It's Lent. So I do that more for that reason, not because there's virtue in giving up one food versus the other. The other thing I do is uh, more intentional pastoral engagement. Uh, and um, I try to set more time aside to just do priestly ministry. Uh, hearing confession, saying masses, spiritual uh, conversations, some sacraments, uh, sacramental prep, things like that. Uh, it's not that I don't do that through the course of the year, but in a job like this where I go to so many meetings and I do so much travel, it's sometimes hard to carve out time for that. I, I do a lot of that uh, in Lent because I gain more from it <laughs> than I give. And... Um, I, I think that I have more tangible signs to see the Lord risen at Easter. Hmm. Well, Father Tim, thank you so much for coming on and having a conversation, and thank you for your ministry to the Society of Jesus and to the Church. Thank you, Mike.